This is the New York Public Library podcast, exploring great books and big ideas. I'm Aiden Flax-Clark. On today's show, Mark Zuckerberg and Martin Luther have a lot more in common than they realize. Both employed relatively new technologies, the printing press and the internet, to fundamentally alter their cultures. Luther's 95 Theses, written in 1517 to protest practices of the Catholic Church, were reprinted and distributed at lightning speed for the 16th century. Within only four years, they had made their way all over German-speaking Europe. Today's guest, Neil Ferguson, writes that they revolutionized not only Western Christianity, but also communication itself. Facebook and its global influence is probably more familiar to you. Maybe you're even getting a push notification at just this moment. But what puts Luther and Zuckerberg in especially common company is networking. According to Ferguson, their products weren't disseminated top-down from some sort of ruling class to a pliant body politic. They achieve success through networks, through individuals and small groups linked up by common interest and shared technology. Networks and the extent to which they've shaped human history are the subject of Ferguson's latest book. It's called The Square and the Tower, Networks and Power from the Freemasons to Facebook. Ferguson argues that the hierarchical structures of power that sit on top of most societies, aka the tower, have been given too much credit in the historical record. Instead, he says, the true sources of power and drivers of change are the interconnected webs of people down below, aka the square. But Ferguson also asks what the pitfalls of the square might be, and whether their modern incarnations, like Facebook and Twitter, have become towers themselves. Ferguson was at the New York Public Library earlier this month and spoke with Jillian Tett, the U.S. Managing Editor of the Financial Times. But before we hear that conversation, I want to tell you quickly about our podcast survey. We want to know you better, your hopes, your dreams, your Desert Island records. Also, what's working for you on the show, what you'd like to hear more of, less of, and it just takes a few minutes. Go to nypl.org slash podcast survey to share your responses. And that's one word, podcast survey. That's again, nypl.org slash podcast survey. Okay, here's Jillian Tett speaking with Neil Ferguson. Neil and I come at life from slightly different perspectives. He is a historian, a great lofty professor of history who's written magisterial books about history through the ages. Um, I am a grubby journalist. Um, but I also trained as an anthropologist um, before I became a journalist. I was a cultural anthropologist. And I've always thought there's a difference between us, Neil, because historians have historically looked at the world top down, in effect. You write about kings, you've written about powers. Anthropologists, are there any anthropologists here in the audience? No, so I can say whatever I want. Um, (laughs) They don't get out much. (laughs) Exactly. We all hide in the bushes and we observe other people. But cultural anthropologists spend time looking at the world bottom up. They look at how people actually live what they think. And I found your new book fascinating because you might call this the anthropologist revenge. (laughs) Because essentially what your book, The Tower and the Square, does is say that you can't tell history top-down just by looking at hierarchies, institutions, the people in power. You have to start looking at what's happening on the ground and horizontal relationships too. Explain to me how you came to this um, vision, how you became a closet anthropologist. Well, you're right, Gillian, that the book is very interdisciplinary because the people who have done good work on networks not only social networks, but all kinds of networks, have not been historians. Uh, They have been sociologists, physicists, 
There have been some economists who've done work on, on networks and anthropologists. So part of what I did in writing the book was, was to educate myself by reading in those disciplines. Temperamentally, though, I, I think I've always been drawn to what you call the horizontal or, or to the town square. The, the title of the book, The Square and the Tower, is it's partly an allusion to the town of Siena, but it's also supposed to epitomize the contrast between uh, the square where you go to meet, to network, to socialize, to sell things, even to ride horses in the case of, of Siena, and the tower where structures of government tend to be located. And, and temperamentally, I've never liked hierarchical structures. I talk a little bit about this in the beginning of the book. I'm just a networks person. I've had a horror of hierarchical governance since my school days. I had a particularly violent reaction against uh, the military when I was in the combined cadet force at Glasgow Academy. I lost my entire uniform and deserted on one memorable occasion. And throughout my young life, I was trying to find a way of avoiding having a boss because that really rankled with me. So of course I became an academic uh, because in <laughs> academic life, power is distributed uh, to faculty rather than to the people nominally in charge of universities, ideal for someone like me. So temperamentally, I was attracted to the square right. and rather repelled by the tower. And then I started work as an historian in archives. Archives are produced by hierarchical structures. It's governments that have archives or big corporations that have archives. And I can remember sitting being really bored in the Hamburg State Archives as a, as a PhD student thinking, God, this is incredibly boring, this stuff. How could they manage to make early 1920s Germany so boring? And by sheer luck, um, perhaps because I was networking or perhaps I just got lucky, I, I met the son of an eminent Hamburg banker of that time, Eric Warburg. And he said, oh, you really must come and see my father's papers. So I went to the, the office, as it had been, of his father in M.M. Warburg and Company in Hamburg. And there was the real story of early 1920s Germany, which had not been in the state archive. The bureaucrats of the Hamburg state just carried on as if everything was normal. But when you went to the bankers' papers, you saw that Germany in the early 1920s was experiencing the most disastrous hyperinflation that had ever been. So that was the moment in my career that I, a light bulb went on above my head. I thought, wow, the real story's here. The real story is not in the state archives. It's in the private archives. And that led me into a series of projects about bankers that essentially were about financial networks. But I, not having been trained as an anthropologist or, for that matter, a sociologist, didn't fully appreciate what these networks were doing and how to understand them until right. recently. So basically, your first few books really were more written about history in terms of the tower, in terms of the people who were running the show, the hierarchies. Then you realize actually the horizontal networks were very, very important too. No, I don't think I really wrote about the tower at all. I mean, the first book uh, was about these, these bankers in, in Hamburg. Um, and, and then I wrote a book about the First World War that pays minimal attention to the decision makers who thought that they were running the war and is much more about the experience of ordinary men. Right. Uh, so I, if you look through the books I've, I've written, and 
and try to see a pattern. I think the pattern is a tendency to look at history from the vantage point of the town square rather than from the vantage point of, of, the, of the tower. You see, many people might be quite surprised to hear you say that because certainly the impression that we have is that we are currently living in the most networked age that there has ever been. You know, we're all in networks. We're all busy communicating with each other horizontally. Given your reading of history, is this anything new? It's much less new than people think in Silicon Valley. I moved recently a year and a half ago to Stanford and was astonished to find a mentality amongst people in the technology sector that essentially regarded history as having begun with the Google IPO. <laughs> and everything before that was a stone age. No records are available. Why would you study it anyway? And I, I naturally was somewhat taken aback to find that my great store of knowledge was regarded as essentially worthless. Of course, it's not new. Social networks have always existed, and the people in technology exaggerate the importance of technology. In fact, the most striking thing uh, for me is the extent to which it was possible for human beings to create enormous social networks without any technology at all. It's not really an area of expertise for me, but let's face it, the spread of Christianity and later the spread of Islam uh, are two of the most remarkable stories of, of social networking. Things go viral like nothing has gone viral in our time. And there was no technology at that point. In fact, these, these things went viral in, in partly illiterate populations that had almost no means of communication, no printing press, much less personal computers. So one important point the book makes is that you really don't need technology to have many of the things that we regard as extraordinary and new about our own time. All that has happened in the last 10 or 20 years is that we have allowed, through technology, networks to get much bigger and faster than they ever were before. But I think that's a quantitative difference, not really a qualitative difference. So in the book, I try and draw an analogy. It's probably the most important analogy in the book, so we might as well get right to it. Between what happened 500 years ago, when the printing press allowed Martin Luther's message to go viral through Central Europe and then right across Europe, and our own time. I, I think in our own time, the personal computer is what the printing press was then a technology that allows social networks to operate more efficiently than before. If Luther had tried to do the Reformation without the printing press, he would have failed and we'd not really have heard of him. He'd probably have just been burnt at the stake. Right. Now, that's a very interesting parallel to make, partly because Silicon Valley doesn't like being told that they're just creatures of history and nothing they've created is actually that new. Um, that's certainly not the message that is normally you know, tossed around Silicon Valley. But secondly, you know, if you look at networks, Silicon Valley is convinced that networks are always good. This is not just the age of the network, the triumph of the network. When you look back at history, what does that tell you about what networks do? And should we celebrate networks? To me, the most startling revelation as I wrote this book was that the people who had built the internet and then <clears throat> built the big network, network platforms that run on in the internet, Google and, and Facebook and, and Twitter, those people had not really contemplated the possibility that there might be a downside to connecting everybody. 
So the, the general assumption in Silicon Valley, and this has been true really since the mid-1990s, is that we've created this fantastic new place called cyberspace where everybody is a netizen. And when everybody is connected, then everything will be awesome. I mean, everything is awesome is the, that tune, I think it was from the Lego movie, that goes through my head every time I'm talking to these people. Everything <laughs> is awesome. That's because you've got small kids. <laughs> and it's like everything And anyone else who's got small kids can join <laughs> and sing it, sing it with him. <laughs> driving into work at Stanford, you always hear, um, you know, that the sponsors of NPR include a, a foundation uh, which is, is all about the, the benefits of a planet where everything is connected. And this, <laughs> this notion that it's all great is the Kool-Aid. When you think about it, even from the vantage point of network science, which I assume at least some of these people studied, that was never going to be the outcome. It was never going to be the case that it would be awesome if we were all connected. So one of the key points the book makes is that leave history aside, just think about what network science tells us. Number one rule of social networks is their tendency to polarize. Birds of a feather flock together, the old saying. There's a fancy word for that, homophily. We gravitate towards people like us. There were studies by sociologists back in the 1970s that showed that even in, in supposedly integrated high schools in the United States, the network of friends was highly polarized, usually by, by race. Well, this polarization is pretty standard in a social network. And so we should not be amazed. We should not have been surprised that creating large online social networks would produce not the global community of Mark Zuckerberg's uh, many pronouncements, but rather this rather terrifying world of hostile clusters that, uh, that like one another's thoughts, retweet one another's thoughts, and, and excoriate the thoughts of the other cluster. So that was not, that should not have surprised us. Now, wearing my historian's hat, I say, well, gee whiz, like Mark Zuckerberg, Martin Luther thought that if you connected everybody, if everybody could read the Bible and have a direct relationship with God, everything would be awesome. He didn't quite use those words. Uh, he said there will be, this will be the priesthood of all believers that the Bible talks about. Uh, didn't turn out that way because what happened? Polarization. A bunch of people in places like Wittenberg said, yeah, this is a great idea. We're, we're, we're on for this, but you haven't gone quite far enough. Let's really do the Reformation. Calvin comes along. And a bunch of other people said, this is absolutely wrong. You're a heretic. We need a counter-Reformation. And over 130 years, instead of a priesthood of all believers, you had a massive uh, ongoing religious civil war in, in Europe. I fear that something similar is brewing on the internet uh, today. And we should not be surprised by that. That's kind of what history and network science would have predicted. Well, I must say, I find that um, very potent way of describing what's happening. Um, I, I remember talking to Biz Stone, one of the founders of Twitter, a few years ago, um, who told me that when he created Twitter, you know, they actually dreamt it up in a bar in Austin. And they imagined it was going to be Twitter like a sort of cyber pub, like a bar in space where everyone or in cyberspace, everyone could flock together and congregate as a single mass. And it was like that for the first couple of years because it was small 
And then when it got big, it splintered. I know pubs in Glasgow that are much more like what Twitter is. Because uh, <laughs> in pubs in Glasgow, there's always somebody by about 10 o'clock going, oh, do you want to fight? Do you want to fight? Come on then. And that's what Twitter's like. It's like exactly. a whole bunch of drunk people trying to get into a fight. Every day, exactly. all day. And they're and surprised. It's like last one of the other founders of Twitter last year is like, oh, I thought everything would be wonderful if we could. I mean, and it turns out I was wrong. And my response to that was like, well, duh. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's why you need a bit of history. But I mean, if you look at that parallel with what happened post-Reformation, you had 150 years of brutal, bloody fights, which are often swept under the carpet, you know, the brutality of what happened in the subsequent um, era. Do you see any way to avoid that pattern today in terms of trying to reign in the networks? I mean, do we need to reimpose authoritarian control? Do we need to go Chinese because the Chinese are trying to control the, the, uh, the network? Um, well, that's a good point, Julie. I mean, the Chinese have an answer to that question. I was just in Hangzhou the other day, headquarters of Alibaba. The, the Chinese answer is, yes, you can have network platforms, not the Western ones, Chinese ones, Baidu, Alibaba, Tencent, uh, but they have to be subordinate to the party. And if the party wants the data, the party can have the data. And that's broadly speaking, the arrangement, which is, at least in turn, that, that is at least a consistent answer to the question. Uh, it's not one that I would favor, uh, but it is at least consistent. We have not got a consistent answer to this problem. We currently live in a society in which, number one, private companies, uh, the ownership of which is pretty concentrated, know more about citizens than the government does. Secondly, the public sphere where all debate, whether it's about politics or anything else, where that goes on, that has radically changed. So that 45% of Americans now get news from Facebook. And the news feed uh, is a kind of a source for news that, until it's changed, which we, we're told it's going to be, is designed to give you the news that you'll be engaged by, not necessarily the news as we used to understand it. So I think these are two profound changes that are deeply destabilizing to our democracy, and 2016 revealed just how destabilizing. I don't think we fully processed what happened in 2016 yet, partly because the Russian interference uh, has become the number one story. Now, I think that's not the number one story. I don't think there was enough of it to have made the difference. What is undeniable in my mind is that without Facebook and Twitter, Trump would not have won. Mm. Uh, the, the volume of content that can be attributed to the Russians sounds very big. You know, what is it like? They 3,000 ads on Facebook and they were seen by 146 million people. And a lot of people hear that and they go, wow, that must have been the decisive factor. But that's nothing compared with the, the billions of posts about the election that ordinary Americans generated online. The sheer volume of content on Facebook is so enormous that the Russians were really just putting drops in the ocean. And the Trump campaign understood the Facebook tool much better than the Clinton campaign did. So we're still, I think, not fully appreciative of what has changed. The public sphere has structurally changed in such a way uh, that Facebook in particular, and I think it's more important than Twitter, has become the biggest and most powerful content publisher in history. Zuckerberg is 10 times more powerful than William Randolph Hearst at the height of his power. 
And yet Facebook is regulated as if it were not a content publisher, as if it's just a tech company with no liability for the content that appears on the site because of an exemption dating back to the mid-1990s. Now, there's just no way that that's a sustainable state of affairs. I don't know what the answer is, but I would certainly start by leveling the playing field so that Facebook is a content publisher and we stop pretending that it's some kind of tech startup that shouldn't have liability for the content that appears there. That would be a good start. Well, as a journalist, I completely agree. But then I'm not exactly entirely neutral, um, I have to say. But Whereas I'm curious. I am. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely not. Um, but I'm curious, you know, when you look at the power that Facebook has amassed, extraordinary power, and I completely agree with you, by the way, that they are the world's biggest publisher in history, even though whenever I've seen Mark Zuckerberg or Sheryl Sandberg, they say they're not publishers. Mm. But when you look at that power, do you think, in fact, what's happened is that under the guise of creating a network, you've actually created a new set of towers, yeah. but not government towers. They're called Facebook Absolutely. and Google towers. So that's actually the new form of hierarchy, which has been concealed with the network. Yeah. And we've seen that before. I mean, you talk about it in the book. You have a wonderful chapter relating what happened in Germany in the 1930s and the fact that the movement that brought um, Hitler to power was originally a network that then turned into a very scary tower. That's a really important insight of the book, that things can start out as distributed networks and morph very quickly into new kinds of hierarchy. Part of the way in which Silicon Valley sells itself is as the friend of democracy in that we are all netizens thanks to the technology. And, and this idea that, that we would be able as netizens to speak truth to power was a very fashionable one. I mean, it's only a few years ago that it was almost conventional wisdom that the technology was the enemy of the dictatorships and the friend of democracy. At the time of the Arab Spring, remember, it was supposed to be, you know, Google and, and Facebook and so forth that had brought the crowds into Rio Square uh, and overthrown Mubarak and the other dictators. Well, fast forward to 2016, that story seems a lot less plausible because we see how power has been concentrated uh, in this newly restructured public sphere. And I, I make the point, it's one of my six laws of networks, that networks are inegalitarian. They may claim to be egalitarian, but you're not all equal netizens in the network. Actually, the structure of the network itself follows a power law. Some, you're all nodes. I don't know if you realize that you're a node, but you are a <laughs> node. And you are all connected in extraordinary ways that we could graph if we knew enough about you. And we well, they find... do graph. I mean, I've yeah. actually spent time inside Facebook doing a bit of anthropology there. And I was very struck by how the Facebook, senior Facebook staff actually use the language of computing and computer science to describe people. Not because they're trying to be evil, but because that's the mental framework they Absolutely. have. And so, they talk about people as nodes. So if we graph the nodes in this room, yes. we would find that it's not a lattice in which each of you has the same number of edges, relationships to the rest. Actually, it would turn out that there would be some super connected nodes and there would be some sad network isolates. You know, <laughs> the person who came here on his own. I used to be that person. Um, but in any network, big or small, there is not equality. Uh, because of the strange phenomenon of preferential attachment, people who join a network, they want to be connected to the person who's already really connected. They don't want to connect to the person who doesn't have many connections. So in itself, most social uh, network architecture is inegalitarian. 
Um, and then you have the, the further twist that, that the network is owned. And the ownership of the giant network platforms, as I mentioned earlier, is highly concentrated. I mean, you guys are all the, the users. We're users. Uh, probably not many of you are owners. Uh, and the difference between being a user and being an owner of one of these companies is a massive difference. So I think that's one of the, the disconnects that I've been wrestling with, that, that the propaganda says that we've all been empowered and the world has somehow become more horizontal. Whereas in reality, uh, the network platforms have produced extraordinary concentrations of, of power, both in economic terms and in terms of connectedness. Do you think there is going to be a popular backlash against this? I think it's begun. And I, I mean, I ask this partly because I'm fascinated. Next week in Davos, um, which I'm about to go to, which is the ultimate tower in the snow, there are always surveys of, you know, global sentiment and, you know, what people do or don't trust. And what one of the surveys shows this year is really a very sharp swing away from trusting social platforms and networks and social media and actually trusting the real media more. Yeah. And a swing away from these networks, people trusting someone like me, and in fact trusting more in terms of authority and government, which is quite unexpected. The last 10 years it's been going in the other direction. I think this backlash that you alluded to has already begun. And I mean, the I numbers think aren't actually out yet. They'll come out next week. Yeah, but, but it's, you know. it's in line with other uh, survey data that, that people have been, I think, shocked by what has emerged about the 2016 election. And as they become aware, not just of the fake news problem, but what I'll call the extreme views problem, uh, they are rightly saying to themselves, wait a minute, I, I should not rely so much on these platforms. I mean, I'll give you an illustration of the problem, which I, I think captures quite well the ways in which these platforms are engines of polarization and potentially the destabilization of democracy. I saw a great paper that came out after the book was published that showed that a tweet is 20% more likely to be retweeted for every emotive or moral word that it uses. So the incentive on Twitter is to use strong language. And it's funny, left-wing Twitter uses the F word a lot, uh, and right-wing Twitter not so much, but they use different kinds of, of strong language. So we're incentivized, at least Twitter users are incentivized, if what they want is retweets, to use strong language. And that's why you get that, that right. Glasgow pub effect of people saying, do you want to fight? Do you want to fight? So I think that's deeply unhealthy. And it's a reason why people are turning uh, at least a, a more skeptical eye on, the, on their smartphones and asking right. if perhaps they've become overrided. There are also these studies that show it's actually bad for your mental health. Mm. Before we came out here, we were talking about the mental health break of reading books. Uh, you spent part of the holidays reading your way through a pile of books for a book com competition and found it surprisingly yeah. pleasant as I had an to experience. Read, you know, I had to read a dozen books cover to cover, deeply, um, and haven't done that for years. I recommend it, sitting in the library. We're in the right place. We're preaching to the choir here. But, exactly. but this, the, there is, in fact, now compelling evidence that allowing people to spend too much time on Facebook, especially young people, uh, is actually bad for their mental health. So I think the backlash is beginning, and I think it's, it's urgently needed. 
It's not enough for the companies to say, oh, we're going to change the news feed. And I, I'm not com convinced that that is fundamentally going to alter the business model. I think we all need to be a good deal more selective in our use of, of these network platforms. And, and the other point I would make is that, and this comes out very clearly from, from some of the research I read, real networks of real people in real space and real time are very much more valuable and effective than the virtual online networks. I mean, in any case, the truth is that you can't know millions of people. You can maybe know 100 people. That seems like how we're wired by evolution. And so there is an illusory quality to the online social networks. They're too big to be plausible, and the relationships we have on them are, in fact, not real relationships. So I think it's also, I guess, a call for us to get to get back to real networks, the real networks of, of local communities. This is a language that Facebook has learned to talk, yeah. uh, but I, I don't believe that it's going to be easy for them to align what they do with what I'm talking about. One of the most fascinating passages in this fascinating book, and there's endless little gems in this book. I must say, I like the fact your chapters are very short. Um, you can digest a chapter on the subway. So chapter 32 out of these six chapters has a wonderful bit talking about the 1890s in which it says that um, after there was a big financial crisis in 1873, you had the rise of populism. Sounds familiar? And it says the populist problem was not their diagnosis in a globalized network world. And we're talking about eight, the 1890s. Inequality really was increasing because immigrant labor was eroding the wages of native born workers while the profits of the great concentrations of industrial and financial capital were flowing to a tiny elite. This is the 1890s. The problem was that the populist remedy seemed ins insufficient, and they were basically trying to ban trade, put tariffs on imports, exclude migrants, and etc., etc. I look at that. It sounds horribly familiar mm. to where we are today. It did not end well. When you look at where America's heading now, what do you see, given that we have so many of these populist pressures, this inequality, this anger, which Donald Trump has tapped into? Um, we have this network effect building up and turning into anything but a network. Where do you see America going right now? Well, it's, I think it's important to use the right analogy. And, and as people have been trying to understand uh, the Trump phenomenon, I've been struck by how many bad analogies have been drawn. I strongly oppose the view that this is some version of the 1930s. I, I think that anybody who equates populism and fascism simply hasn't studied enough history. Sometimes I feel as if the only history anybody knows in the media is the 1930s, so everything ends up being about the 1930s. But the 1870s, 80s, 90s uh, seem to me to offer much better analogies. Uh, and if one looks at the populist movement after the 1873 financial crisis, it's, it's uncannily familiar. There's even a Trump figure that nobody's ever heard of, Dennis Kearney, who was this demagogic Irish-American who, whose campaign slogan, he was in California, uh, was the, the Chinese must go. And, uh, and this was such a, a powerful slogan that by 1882, Kearney and his ilk had persuaded Congress to pass the 
1882 Exclusion Act, which effectively ended Chinese immigration to the United States, or at least began the process of ending it. So as I have tried to understand Trumpism, the Trump phenomenon, I've found that analogy more persuasive because the context similar to the financial crisis uh, that we experienced in 2008-9 was nothing like as bad as 1929-32. The economic consequences were far less, and the situation of the United States uh, in the last few years has in no way resembled the situation of the United States in the 1930s, much less Germany in the 1930s. I mean, honestly, could people please stop comparing Trump to Hitler, or now it's Stalin? Uh, I mean, come on. It's, that is just such a terrible analogy. I know we're in New York and getting incredibly upset about Donald Trump is like a local recreation. <laughs> but please, I know however much that gratifies you, a good historical analogy is the populism of the late 19th century. And it's a reassuring one because what happened uh, illustrates how quickly populism runs out of steam. Uh, populism, I think, has a short half-life. And it has a short half-life because it can't really deliver what it promises. And populism is about, we're going we're to restrict immigration. <laughs> I'll do the Trump voice. We're going to do trade deals, better trade deals. <laughs> so many trade deals. And, and you promise all this, and people say, yes, my real income has stagnated since the late 1990s. And I buy your story that this is about immigration and free trade and a corrupt financial elite. But then you have to deliver. And guess what? We know from the late 19th century that restricting immigration and putting up tariffs does not significantly enhance uh, the real incomes of the people who voted for this stuff. And, and one can already see this, that the payoffs in economic terms of Trump's policies are not going to the people uh, in Michigan and Wisconsin and rural Pennsylvania who voted for this stuff. They're not, I, I don't think, benefiting anything like as much as let's face it, the elites of Manhattan, or for that matter, Silicon Valley. So I think at some point, you know, the scales fall from people's eyes. And I'm struck by how quickly populism runs out of populist support. I mean, let's face it, the approval rating has maybe ticked up in the last couple of weeks, but it's barely 40%, 39, I think, is the latest average. That doesn't look like a movement that has a tremendously long life ahead of it. Certainly, the late 19th century lesson is clear. People try the populism of the right, and then they find it doesn't really deliver, and they look for something else. In, that, in the late 19th century, that was progressivism, which you could characterize, I guess, as the populism of the left, though I don't think that quite works. I don't know what's going to come next. I think that's really hard to say. But my sense is, looking also at the British experience, uh, the Brexit vote, after all, was in some ways an intimation of what would happen in the United States uh, in the presidential election. It, one can see disillusionment with Brexit now in the polls. You're getting a real move in the last few months uh, in the direction of remorse. So I think it all wears off quite quickly. And as long as one uses the right analogy, I think it's possible to keep one's cool in Trump's America, uh, although it's not fashionable to do that. <laughs> We're supposed to well, wave our arms. And... So we have a lot of questions, as I thought, given how, how many themes you've touched on. Um, so I'll start from the top. Can you comment on the alleged censorship of conservative content on Facebook and Twitter? And what, what responsibilities do the companies have to manage this? That's a really interesting question. I think the, the reality is that Silicon Valley's collective head exploded when they realized that the tools that they had built had been used uh, in a conservative and indeed populist cause. Uh, 
And the more apparent it becomes that Facebook in particular was indispensable to Trump's victory, the more disquiet there is in, in the Silicon Valley tech community. After Charlottesville, there was an explicit discussion of excluding content uh, from these, these platforms. Some people were quite open about that. In the sense, these platforms have the ability to exclude whoever they like. They have community guidelines and they can apply those as they please. Now, you might think, well, these white supremacists are awful people. Uh, we should shut them down. And a jolly good thing too, if those people disappear from the internet. The problem is, who decides who is a, an alt-right neo-fascist? Uh, because if the answer to that question is either an algorithm or 10,000 fact-checkers that were just hired by Facebook on the minimum wage, I don't predict a good outcome. Let me illustrate why this is problematic. The discussion after Charlottesville was fascinating because the technology companies were in a great hurry to distance themselves in any way that they could from the far right and indeed from Trump because he appeared to equivocate about what had happened at Charlottesville. In the rush to do something, it was interesting to see who, which organizations were co-opted into the process of identifying unacceptable white supremacists uh, and alt-right types. One of those organizations was the, was the Southern Poverty Law Center. Now, the Southern Poverty Law Center sounds kind of, you know, like a respectable civil rights organization. One day, once upon a time, it probably was. But now, it is, I think, a highly suspect organization that delights in blacklisting people uh, that fall short of its particular liberal uh, criteria. And a case in point is my wife. Now, my wife is much more interesting than me um, and much more brilliant than me and much braver than me. And over her career, she's repeatedly uh, challenged uh, Islamic extremists. Ayan Hirsi Ali uh, is my hero. Uh, and she has done more for women's rights than the entire Women's March put together, in my view, because she has repeatedly spoken out against the erosion of women's rights happening anywhere in the world where Sharia law is being imposed or being propagated. But we found last year, to our horror, that her name appeared on the Southern Poverty Law Center's list uh, of, let me remember the term they used, anti-Muslim extremists. There is no list of Muslim extremists on the Southern Poverty Law Center website. Just a list of people that they've decided to identify as Islamophobes. You can see where I'm going. If Silicon Valley asks the Southern Poverty Law Center, please tell us who the alt-right is so we can ban them, uh, what's to stop them saying Ayan Hirsi Ali is one of those people who should be excluded? Who decides? Now, in Europe, there's a kind of widespread recognition that certain things should be censored. The Germans are in favor of censoring anything that smacks of their dreadful past. And they say to Facebook, you must censor your content, and if you don't do it well enough, we'll fine you. I hope we don't go down that road in this country, because I would rather that bad people were online and that we had to contend with that and live with that than that good people should be censored in that kind of an arbitrary and I think unjust and dangerous way. These two people agreed with me. <laughs>
Well, that is a very thought-provoking issue. We, let me answer one last point for that. We don't really yet know. The truth is that rumors are going around about Twitter uh, stealthily banning people. Uh, the truth is there's no transparency. We can't really tell what the algorithm is going to do. Um, it's been said, and I think it must be true, that, that the newsfeed algorithm can be tweaked any way they like. And if they want to make Sean Hannity disappear from the newsfeed, they probably can. You might think, great, may he disappear altogether. But you see what a slippery slope that is. Uh, so I'm, I think this is a major issue. I think it is not going to be fully thrashed out until it becomes apparent to Republicans that they have a problem. And they are slow, I think, to realize what is coming their way. One thing's for sure, there will never be another 2016. Silicon Valley is not going to let its tools be used by the right again in the way that they were in 2016. So we'll see. I think this is a story to watch. And it, to my mind, is really the key issue. It'll probably be on this issue that the big battle about the power of Silicon Valley is fought. Mm, fascinating. Well, it's a good way to come into the next question, which is, how do you think China is managing these networks and can they control them going forward? Can they avoid polarization? Well, it's a completely different story in the sense that, I mean, cleverly, the Chinese decided to exclude the, the US tech companies to a large extent from the Chinese market and allow their own tech companies to evolve. And so there's a rival ecosystem. It's almost as if there's another internet in, in China uh, with Baidu as, as Search and Alibaba as the parallel Amazon. And then Tencent with WeChat as this kind of extraordinary combination uh, of Facebook and Twitter and, and WhatsApp. And PayPal, because it's very interesting how, how the Chinese tech companies have outstripped the American tech companies in financial technology. Well, the polarization of the sort that we're talking about is highly unlikely to happen in the same way in China because there is a very vigilant state monitoring content night and day for any evidence of autonomous political organization. Uh, we, we know the kinds of, of thing that get censored on the Chinese internet. It's not necessarily political criticism. In fact, you can speak quite freely about politicians, maybe not Xi Jinping, but other politicians on, on the internet. But when you start saying things like, I think you know, maybe 10 of us should get together and do X, even if X is something quite innocuous, that's what they don't like. So there is no question that the most powerful engine of social control in history now exists in China. And as they talk more and more about a system of social credit, where people will be uh, rewarded for good behavior and punished for bad behavior. We enter a world that I think Orwell and Huxley uh, themselves could not have imagined. Uh, no totalitarian regime in the mid uh, 20th century achieved this kind of knowledge about its citizens' behavior. Uh, it creates the possibility that the Chinese Communist Party will live a lot longer than any of us expected and continue to exercise power a lot longer than any of us anticipated. Uh, I find it chilling, uh, to be honest. It makes me nervous when I go to China. But as I mentioned earlier, it is at least an internally consistent answer to the question, what do you do with big data? The answer is that it's ultimately at the disposal of the party is an answer that makes sense. 
Well, again, one of the fascinating things about the polls that will be um, re released next week in Davos is that if you look back over the last year, public trust in America and American institutions has collapsed. Mm. Trust in China in its own government and its institutions have gone through the roof. Yeah. There's a the there is a spring in their step. I was very struck by this in, in Beijing and Hangzhou last week, that self-confidence in China that, yeah. that I hadn't really seen before, and the realization that, that the Trump presidency is a gift to them. It is allowing them essentially to step into a leadership role. This began a year ago at Davos yeah. with Xi Jinping's speech, exactly. in which he uh, p positioned himself as the new custodian of of globalization, but this is just the beginning. I think one thing that's really fascinating, and this is a story that hasn't really been written yet, is the way in which the Chinese tech companies are now going to compete against the US tech companies in the rest of the world and win uh, because they've got, a, they've got a proposition, which is A, we're not America, mm -hmm. and B, we understand your issues because we were an emerging t market too once. So watch this space. I think the expansion of Alibaba in particular as a global player is gonna be a, one of the big business stories of the next few years. Oh, absolutely. I mean, my own daughter is using WeChat to talk to my niece because, you know, it, they, they're studying Chinese and it's better, better offering. Yeah. Xi Jinping was saying that he was reading her, her, you know, <laughs> her speed well, with interest just the other day. And my, one, of the, one of the Davos <laughs> China vignette before I move on to the next question is that I remember talking to some of the senior Chinese leadership in Davos a couple of years ago and we were talking about democracy and they said, well, we don't have democracy but we have social media. And what they meant by that was for them, social media was a weather vane mm. to read how the public mood was changing and not just monitor it, but also read it. Yeah. And to make sure their policies were just one inch ahead right. of where the potential for a revolt would be, yeah. or anger would be. You know, if people were complaining about the environment online, then you could actually start doing something on the policy side. And guess what? You're and they would argue that that's a more effective way of testing the public mood Permanent opinion polls, like which... the biggest focus group in the in the world, uh, and you see the effects because with an amazing swiftness, Beijing's air quality has improved. Yes, and, and I would never have expected that to happen so fast, but it has. The last two trips I made, blue skies, fresh air, none of the lung problems I had before, and I think that's an absolutely good illustration yeah. of the ways in which the regime can now be very responsive to public sentiment because it has incredibly good data on it. Uh, and we're in the strange position that the same data exists on public sentiment in the United States, but Facebook has access to that data, and it's pretty hard for anybody else to see it. Exactly. Completely different question. Um, was Brexit a triumph for the square? Well, not, not the big squares of London. Um, not Trafalgar Square, certainly. But it was a triumph for the, the little squares of provincial England and Wales, uh, and also for the pubs of, of provincial England and Wales. It certainly was an education to be on the wrong side of that. I was a, an active uh, proponent of the Remain uh, campaign. And uh, for me, the education came from going to the provinces to try to explain to people why it would be a bad idea uh, for Britain to leave the European Union. Uh, there was such a disconnect between what was being said in London uh, by the politicians, by David Cameron and, and George Osborne, and what people were talking about in the pubs uh, of the, the provinces. And uh, I'll still, I'll never forget the conversation I had in a Welsh pub uh, just a few days before the referendum. And, uh, and it went like, this is a pub called the Prince of Wales. Uh, 
in South Wales, not far from the great steelworks at Port Talbot. And I was sitting next to a gentleman who said, I didn't know him at all. He said, do you know, he, he said, I, I own the biggest liquor store. He didn't say that. He, he used the British term off-license. Off liquor store uh, in Bridgend. I said, how fascinating. He said, do you know what my most popular beers are? My best-selling beers? I said, I do not know what your best-selling beers are saying. He said, Polish and Lithuanian beer. And I said, well, I infer from that that you will be voting Remain as your biggest customers are clearly EU nationals from outside the United Kingdom. And he looked at me as if I was completely bloody mad. He said, no, don't you see how much bloody money they're making off us? And that was the moment the penny dropped for me. A man whose customers were Polish and Lithuanian workers buying beer from his liquor store was going to vote for Brexit. It wasn't about economics. He didn't care about the economic cost. It was about immigration. And I can remember telling George Osborne, we have a problem. Because the whole strategy of the government was not to talk about immigration, but to talk about gross domestic product. The people in the Prince of Wales did not care about the Treasury's projections about the effect of Brexit on GDP. That wasn't the issue for them. So I think Brexit was a victory for that provincial, whether it's the the square or the pub, that provincial res response and that sense that the London elite was completely out of touch. And it helped me understand Trump because I realized that the same kind of people in the same kind of mood, in the same kind of places were gonna vote for Trump. And it, it helped me at least ignore uh, what was a tremendously bad uh, commentary in the election from the, from the professional pundits who just got it wildly wrong. Well, I must say I had a very similar experience, you know, having also got Brexit wrong, having, you know, been very shocked by that. When I came back to the US, I spent a lot of time trying to think myself out of the mentality of New York, if you yeah. like. And um, it's, yeah. a, it's a partly this kind of country and city leitmotif is a, is a familiar one for historians. I can remember reading a lot about that in my days in undergraduate studying the 17th century uh, English Civil War, that the battles between country and metropolis uh, are extremely important. And, and there's a paradox here. I think we all thought that social network platforms would empower the metropolitan centers, because logically that's where everybody's online all the time. But it turned out that these network platforms empowered the provinces. And I don't think many people in Silicon Valley foresaw that their tool would be so powerful in places like rural Pennsylvania. That was Neil Ferguson speaking with Jillian Tett. If you live in New York, you can get Ferguson's The Square and the Tower or read Jillian Tett's work in the Financial Times from one of our local branches. And you can read more of Neil Ferguson's books on our app, Simply E. If you're not in New York, go to your local public library branch and give them some love. As always, thanks for listening to the New York Public Library podcast. Don't forget to take our podcast survey if you have a few moments. Go to nypl.org slash podcast survey. And as always, if you're enjoying the show, we'd appreciate any feedback you can leave about it in Apple Podcasts or wherever else you listen.